0: Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. The tables are turned in this episode as we see Edgar Wright discuss his film, Last Night in Soho, with fellow director Rose Glass. A while ago, Rose was interviewed by Edgar about her debut feature, Saint Maud, and you can hear that conversation by scrolling back in our podcast feed. But back to Last Night in Soho, Edgar spoke to Rose about coordinating complex scenes Dracula O'Clock, and how the team got that shot in Haymarket in the bag. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So we're on now. I'm not introducing you. I was getting ready to be like, here's Edgar Wright.
1: You can introduce me. I don't don't mind. Whatever you want to do.
0: too late now. I was going to say, what a... Because well, I was trying to, I was struggling, like, so before I got on here to sort of think how to, like, best kind of describe your film. But I guess everyone's seen it, which is good. It's sort of fantastical, sensory overload. I put, I put fresh as wheat gone turned into a terrible acid trip, or something. Like that. <laughs> fresh, fresh as what? Fresh as wheat turned into a bad acid trip, but in a good way, kind of In a good way. Yeah. No, definitely. I loved it. It was, um, it's. I sort of I watched, watched it again today just before we spoke and I just, um, yeah, I forgot quite how kind of, uh, yeah, the sensory overload part of it is, which I so enjoyed seeing actually in the cinema for a change these days. And uh, I don't know, I wasn't quite sure where to start, I guess I just wondered where, because I read, I was reading some of the notes and you're saying that you sort of started coming up with the idea quite a long time ago. Yeah. I was just wondering, like, in the very, very beginning, like, it's such sort of a big thing that kind of goes in all these different directions and tones and things coming together. But in the very, very beginning, like, what was the very first kind of hook that you had in your head for the idea? Like, was it character, image, or was it more to do with, like, the genres you wanted
1: to play with, or...? It's funny, because I think, and I don't know if you have this with your stuff, but, like, I know what all the different seeds are, but I can't remember what came yeah. first. I think maybe there are a number of inspirations one one of them would be um one of them would be just being in Soho itself like in in London you know obviously Soho, as we all know, is at the center of the film and TV industry, but also it's the sort of place where for hundreds of years like kind of artists and the criminal underworld have mixed or there's been you know the sort of that 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 very kind of blurred line between kind of like the high arts and the sort of the, 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 the darker side of town. And I think like, you know, every movie that I've worked on, I've worked in Soho for some part of it. And also, you know, you socialize a lot in Soho. So I started to think after a while that I'd spent more time in Soho than any like flat in London I'd ever been in, you know, just in terms of like, and also just working in the industry, a lot of time here, like at night and late at night and feeling that kind of energy change. Yeah. But I think I think the sort of one of the main inspirations, and there are a number of them, was just the feeling of when you're in old buildings. And I don't know if you're like this, but I can't. I'm the sort of person, a bit like Eloise, in the sense of I just start to think about what these walls have seen. And uh, I think it's when when me and Simon were writing Shaun of the Dead on Berwick Street, we were writing it next door to a walk-up brothel, and so it was that thing where it's kind of just an interesting thing where you're writing a screenplay. And it's in Soho. I mean, it's not really the same in other cities in the world. Maybe like Paris or like San Francisco has similar things, but it's that thing where it's all just kind of like next door to each other, like directly opposite the Groucho Club is is like a, you know a, a brothel in you know in plain sight. And I always thought that was something that was just interesting about Soho, where it sort of seems like a square mile where like. The general rules don't really apply.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like you stepped into like a parallel thing. It's still the one bit of London that even if I go there all the time, I get completely lost. Like it took me years. It's like a labyrinth kind
1: of thing. It's very tricky. <laughs> and only only through this movie have I learned several different acronyms yeah. <laughs> for Greek, Frith, um, Dean, Wardour. like. So I used to I used to remember it the other way around because it was DFG, like alphabetically D uh-huh. D Frith, yeah. Greek. But um, but that was one that was one sort of thing about just thinking of like the ghosts of the past in, in lots of different ways. Yeah. And the line that Diana Riggs says in the film, where she says, "This is London. Someone's died in every room in every building in this whole city." I mean, I I believe that. I'm not saying murdered in every room, yeah. <laughs> but like, somebody's probably died in every building in London. Yeah. Let's, let's face it, and and. I, I, you know, so there's, there's that sort of part of it. And then the idea of like the two different ideas of what ghosts are is, is the more traditional idea of like ghosts being souls left on earth in torment or with unfinished business or just the idea of ghosts themselves or any paranormal activity being the residue of an event, yeah. you know, of, of a traumatic event like a murder would leave some kind of residue in the air. So there's, there's all that part of it. And then that was coupled with more personal things as well is I'm from Somerset. I came to London when I was 20. I didn't know anybody. I like, didn't have any money. It felt like such a cold and forbidding city to start with. And and then on top of that, my my mother, like she studied kind of like fashion at college. My sister-in-law, who is from Cornwall, mm. she studied fashion design at art college my grandmother and Christy Wilson-Cairns' kind of mother and grandmother were both seamstresses as well. So there's a lot of like personal stuff there. And then, and then I guess the final part of it, I promise I'll finish this long-winded answer. The final part of the inspiration was just being obsessed with the 60s as a kid. I was born in 1974, but my obsession with it, it was that having that weird thing of like nostalgia for a decade that you never lived in and the idea that maybe you missed out. And so through my parents' record collection, which was quite a slim box of records from like 1964 to 1972. They seemed to stop buying music when my older brother was born. (laughs) Uh, And then there were no 70s records. So I sort of just, you know, in a pre-internet age or pre even having a portable TV in my bedroom would just listen to their record collection because they weren't anymore. And, you know, you just start to build up this idea of this magical, you know, kind of time that existed before you were born. And then, and then moving to London and being in the place, especially Soho, where I feel the kind of the shadow of the 60s looms really large. And there's always this feeling that it was probably, even if it's cool, it's never been as cool as it was then. Yeah. And so it was, and, and, then, and then beyond that, and this is where I think sort of like the turn in the movie comes, is it started to kind of bother me how much I was thinking about going back in time except of these daydreams about going back to the sixties and mm-hmm. thinking about not just having like a fantasy about it, starting to think about the practical issues of like, Oh, what if I went back, but I didn't have the right money, or what if I was supposed to foil this assassination? And I couldn't remember the date. So, and then you start to think, why am I, why am I even thinking about this so much? And then because nostalgia is such a big thing in culture at the moment, and, you know, I've sort of traded on, nostalgia in in stuff that I'd done before, but I started to kind of wonder is is nostalgia an escape or is it a retreat? And so that's where the sort of the idea of like the kind of, the danger of romanticizing the past and looking back with Rose, not, not you, um, Rose Tinted Spectacles, um, you know, th- the danger of doing that. So that was really, all of those different things start to formulate which of those was first, I can no longer remember.
0: It's interesting though, because I guess that like who you sort of talk about the thing of like sort of the, I get obviously the nostalgia, the danger of kind of looking back too much and sort of getting sucked into that. But I guess by doing it through the story of somebody at that very particular time of, you know, kind of uh, some of the first biggest steps into like adulthood, moving to London for the first time, um, it's there's sort of like fantasies as well that you sort of have obviously growing up. So it's kind sort of like fantasies from different directions of the past, like nostalgia, but also fantasy of like what your life's going to be and sort of, you know, dreams of big lights and sort of, you know, any, anyone who sort of dreamt about particularly being in, you know, the arts or sort of film and things like that or theatre. So it felt it's, um, I don't know, watching it, I was kind of like, is this is this also like a sort of a maybe an abstracted version of like, Edgar's journey into, like, film industry sort of thing with, like, (laughs) you sort of think about all these things that you want to do, and then quite often when you start to get a bit closer to them, I guess particularly at that sort of, like, turning point age, like starting university or film school or whatever it is you're doing, um, often things, when you sort of start to get a bit closer to them, they don't quite
1: look like like how you pictured or thought they would. Yeah. (laughs) No, I, I think it's exactly that. It's that thing of being humbled. You know, like, you're kind of... I, I was making like amateur films in Somerset when I was a teenager. And, you know, in, 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 even in that tiny realm, you feel like sort of like you're kind of like, you know, kind of like in, in control of it. And then as soon as you come to a big city and then into an industry where there are like thousands of other people who want to do the same thing, it's just sort of a humbling experience. And I think it's that thing where it feels sometimes like you versus the city. Do you know what I mean? It's like, do, do you know what I mean? Um, well,
0: yeah, people are very small. I guess the first time, like, come from countryside and stuff as well. It's suddenly, there's quite a big smack in the
1: face. Yeah, and then I think with with this as well, it's also the. I mean, I find it like sort of the the thing that really breaks my heart watching the movie, and it's like so it's so sad to watch is watching Thomas and Mackenzie be so kind of like funny and sure of herself with just her and her grandmother or even like the first couple of people she meets she's sort of too trusting and too yeah. naive and like just kind of and we've all had that feeling as well where you kind of like you just kind of have to be a bit kind of more on guard when you come to a city and certainly when and just watching her kind of like um have that those first disappointments i find really heartbreaking oh, <laughs> it's, it's not really- like Sorry. Well, I was going
0: to say, like, sort of watching it, especially, you know, that sort of, you have a lot of that obviously throughout it, but especially the first kind of third, I guess, when she when there's more of her kind of in the in the sort of more real kind of like uni experience and first going to London. You just kind of like, with, I find that it's, it's fun because like watching the film, I felt like even as things get sort of like the most sort of fun and wonderful and fantastical, like her first sort of like nights where she goes on the weird trips and, and Anya and Matt kind of come in, um, you're sort of always kind of wondering what the, it's, it's a nice feeling in having watching something so fun, but then also just going like, oh, oh no, oh no, don't do this, don't do that, and you worry for her so much. And she's got so much weird energy. <laughs>
1: I, I think there's that thing, and I think this is about Soho and 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 what kind of I guess inspired some of the '60s part of it. Mm. It's just this idea that like and this could happen in any city, but I kind of equate it to kind of London and the West End, is that, like, sort of just one one left turn can sort of turn to sort of disaster and tragedy.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's even, like, the thing, the idea that, like, Sandy, Annie taylor Joyce character, is in the right place. Yeah. At the right time, but meets the wrong person. And me and Christy always used to talk about it. It's the sort of... It's almost that... I mean, I always feel that when I... And this was another sort of couple of inspirations for it was... Number one was like, um, were, I used to, I had this book, uh, like this coffee table book that was given to me called Hammer Glamour. That was about all of the actresses in the Hammer movies. And it's all their publicity shots. And it's this glossy coffee table book. And as a Hammer horror fan, I was like, oh, this is, this is great. And I was reading it. And then as I, to, as I read the biogs of the actresses, I was really struck by the fact that like, maybe like a third of them ended in tragedy or their careers were sort of cut short for a number of reasons. And it was just this kind of huge kind of dissonance between the smiling publicity photos and their actual story and how many sort of careers are cut short. And and those are people who have like made it like sort of in terms of, and you do think that in the sort of showbiz, like I say back then, I mean, the, the horrible, brutal truth of it is that less has changed than one would like. Um, but the idea that, like, sort of, for everybody that's made it, there are, like, a hundred, like, more sort of tragic stories. And it's that, it's that sort of horrible feeling of, like, sort of, that even with Anya going into that club, when she's introduced to sort of, you know, Matt Smith's character, like, you know, for certain people at certain points in the movies, the red flags start coming up, you know? Yeah. And that was always the, the idea. We, we always used to sort of talk about, is the real villain of the piece, the bartender, who palms... Like, uh, like Anya off to Matt Smith. And does he know, does he know that he's an agent or does he know that he's uh, not a manager? Does he know yeah. that he's a bimp?
0: Watching it again, actually, when he's like, oh, maybe you can talk to Jack in the meantime or whatever. I think I missed that the first time. I was kind of like, oh no, like from the very beginning, it's like yeah. all these little things kind of, uh, that you sort of notice the second time around. I mean, even like in her sort of like uh, bedroom in the halls and what's the fantastic, um, roommate called J- Jacasta. Jaca- yeah, it's like oh, I've taken the batteries out of the alarm kind of thing. I like don't It's just all these little like sort of open things. Kind of like oh
1: no, it's not going to go well. I, I mean, it's those things where I, I, you know, it's, it's that. I mean, it's funny because it's that thing where you're kind of armed with. It's funny when Rita Tarshingham is warning like Thomason about London. I mean, even as even as a man going to London. That's exactly how my mum would talk to me about like, just yeah. you know, kind of all those cautionary tales of the big city and all of the kind of, so it's, it almost feels like you're in a Grimm's fairy tale or something is that you're sort of, you know, your own mum is saying, you know, you've had it beaten into you in terms of just like, be careful, like lots of bad people. Like, and it's like that. I mean, the, the, the other thing about it as well, is like the, um, I was going to say one thing about that in terms of there are sort of little red flags for hopefully for a second watch. Yeah. But if you watch in the middle of the dance number, Matt Smith like winks at somebody off camera. And what he's doing is winking to that other guy, you know, when they, because you, you see later on that he gives the other guy played by Paul Brightwell, that they have a frac R on the dance floor. He sort of pays him off. So it's like, it's a whole sting. It's like, oh, you, in, you insult her and I'll punch you out. And then uh, I've been the white knight and then she'll fall into my arm so it's kind of like it's a sting and if you watch it again like you can see that Matt like winks at him as if yeah. to say that's your cue so there's a lot of and and the thing is is that you know Soho is like full of those people to this day <laughs> these kind of like chances and people who are not who they say they are so and obviously back in the, the I mean this was the other thing that was the inspiration for it it was like aside from you know, the sort of psychological thrillers and horror films that we both love. Another big inspiration for it was I was watching a lot of 60s dramas and I was always really struck by there was a particular genre and it isn't just kind of um, uh, British films, but I, I particularly have seen a lot of these where it's about girl comes to London, has the audacity to want to make it big and seems like to be roundly punished for yeah. like the temerity to want to be a star. And there are so, a couple of good ones, and then there are a lot of very moralistic ones, or rather, they're like that they, they you know, and they're all written by it. Sort of starts to occur to me later, are oh, these are written by like older men who seem to be like punishing the young generation?
0: Which so, I would you recommend if I were to check one out
1: out of the ones? Well, I mean, something like, I mean, it like so. There were some ones that I showed that, like, um, I mean, a, a, like, i a, not a, a good one, but kind of a um bizarrely I, I call Miss Collins after there's a there's it, this is not a good film, but it's kind of exactly in this genre. It's called Secrets of a Windmill Girl. And it stars Pauline wow. Collins. And that's why that's why diana Rick's character is called Miss Collins, is because I, I just na- named it after Pauline Collins because she was in that film. I mean, that's like sort of like a, a, an example of a very sensationalistic film where yeah. the 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 advert would say ripped from the headlines, the secrets yeah. of the windmill girl. I mean, there's another one, there's a, a really great book um, by Patrick Hamilton, who wrote Gaslight. It always amazes me that that became, like, a sort of global phrase from that film and play.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, he wrote this book called 20,000 Streets Under the Sky, which is yeah. it's really great, like, like, trilogy of novellas set in, like, 20s Soho and Fitzrovia. And there is a movie, like, made in the sort of 60s of one of the books, and the movie's okay, but... It, it rattles through in like 100 minutes what it takes a whole book to do. So, and, and the net result of that is it feels very kind of like, like just um, exploitative in a way that it's like it's punishing the lead character. Yeah. And so I was really sort of struck by those films, and I thought, well, maybe there's a way to do a dual narrative where you have the 60s, you have that story, but it's seen through the eyes of a modern girl coming to London. And then in it, like, and then subvert everything at the same time. But that was sort of where the kind of, like, those cogs started to come together. And, sort of,
0: so, but, and then if you have an idea of sort of wanting to have those two sort of dual time periods, was it then kind of... Uh, were you immediately thinking time travel or psychosis or sort of um, supernatural? Would, would, did you have, like, a clear idea of how, like, the mechanics of that stuff would work? Like, did
1: you... Yeah.
0: When, when, did,
1: um, when did you team up with Christy? Well, um, so in the, uh, with the, first, um, the first part of the question, so, so I guess the idea was, it was always like, it was like she has a supernatural gift in terms of that she feels like things so much more vividly than anybody else. And in a way, whatever she's been experiencing in Cornwall is nothing compared to the sort of sensory overload of London. And yeah. then when she's in that room, a room that has kind of like, I'm sort of haunted by the events that and in a, in a weird way it's like not to get too kind of like so um spooky here but my mother is very like sort of supernaturally switched on in that she
0: yeah.
1: feels presences and and when I was growing up I'd seen like maybe more than one ghost in our house and I was never like skeptical of that at all I, me and my brother were always very open to the idea and maybe as young horror fans envious of the fact that she had yeah. a ghost and we hadn't but at the same time even as a 10 year old I probably didn't go into the playground the next day and say hey my mum saw the ghost of a hanged woman in our living room because yeah. I, I knew what people would think of that so so there was so and, and then on top of that I think sort of like both like my my mum and also maybe me is once you sort of have the knowledge of that, then when you have dreams and it's like I dreamt about this person or that I dreamt about this person last night or that you're somehow regressing in your dreams so it was always this idea that she's kind of looked so kind of like supernaturally connected that in her dreams she starts to kind of yeah. l- she live- is reliving the experiences of the former occupant so that was always there in the kind of the story was always there and actually. So I had started formulating this for like 10 years and I had the story and I would often tell people the whole story like it was like a campfire tale. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was something stopping me from like just writing it more than just the story. And the other thing that I had before Chrissy came on was the weird, I was doing The World's End. I really wanted to do this movie and I pitched it to Naira Park and originally pitched it with film four when Tessa Ross was still there and told them the whole plot but we were going off to do the world's end and it's like well what can we do in the meantime and i said well we gripped to hire a researcher because a lot of my perceptions of soho what i've read or seen but they're all like and sometimes second and third hand stuff so we hired lucy pardy who is one of bafta last year for being the casting director on rocks and i basically gave her a list of things that i wanted to tackle and she amazingly just did all of these kind of you know, um, first-person interviews. So all these first-hand accounts from people who lived and worked in Soho at the time, people who live and work there now, some incredibly, like, harrowing stuff. And so for a long time, I had the story and this, like, phone book of Soho research and some ideas of the songs. And in 2016, I was editing Baby Driver and I was having lunch with Sam Mendes He wasn't a sir back then, so we do not have to call him Sir Sam Mendes. It was Sam Mendes back then. I like sending emails to Sam Mendes because I always put dear sir, which is (laughs) never, never not funny. Um, So he just mentioned out of the blue, he said, do you know Christy Wilson Cairns? And I said, no. He goes, oh, you two would get on like a house on fire. And so I just went out for like a drink with Christy because I said, Sam Mendes said we should know each other. And when we were meeting, we were sitting in Dean Street and she pointed to the the one one of the few strip clubs that's still in Soho, um, Sunset Strip on Dean Street and she said I used to live above that strip club for five years when I was walk, working around the corner in the Toucan as a barmaid yeah. and I, as soon as she said that I said ah I yeah. yeah she worked in the Toucan for five years and lived above Sunset Strip like so that. as soon as she said that I was like ah I have this story I want to tell you and then another night we went out as Christy reminds me it was the night of Brexit <laughs> So maybe <laughs> we were drowning our sorrows, and uh, I told her the whole story in a, in a variety of different Soho haunts. And of course, like you know what she brings to the movie, it was amazing because I'd lived with the story for so long, but then having somebody else who's actually a young woman who's moved from like Scotland to London and has lived in Soho, it's just like then it's where your kind of personal experiences and her personal experiences. You start to bring everything together. Yeah, I'm surprised at
0: how much actually, sort of considering how sort of like fantastical, like elements of the film are, like actually how uh, how sort of personally
1: connected to bits of it. Both you and christian It's really cool. I no, I mean, I think that's the thing. Is it's difficult. It's always difficult with things like because I'm sure it's the same with you when you say something is like, oh, this is a personal film for me, like you know, the, maybe the most personal films. I mean, all of the personal films that I've read. Like, so when were you a fashion
0: student?
1: And it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I did get. I mean, I went to art college. I didn't do fashion, but like, but like, um, you yeah. know, like they, they are all. And then what's amazing is where it's because it's so much dialogue comes from, there's something that Terence Stamp says in his kind of final scene that a police officer said to me and Simon when we were researching Hot Fuzz and it like chilled us to the bone. I'll give you the pricey of this because it's just this kind of thing. And when Simon Pegg saw the movie, the first thing he said to me afterwards, he goes, oh, my God, you used the slab line. We were doing, we were interviewing police officers and we were interviewing homicide detectives in, like, uh, central London. We went to a pub with them um, in Holborn Mm -hmm. and actually called The Three Little Pigs. That sounds like a kind of joke you'd make, but it was actually where it was. And... um, and as the the night got, I mean, at the start of the night, one of the officers said to Simon, said, "Oh, I need to get a, an autograph for my nephew." And then, like, we were there for a couple of hours, and as the white wine was flowing, it was the conversation was getting darker and darker to the point where Simon particularly was feeling sort of, somewhat <laughs> uncomfortable. And then, like, Simon said, like, "I'm going to go actually." And this police officer said he wanted to get the autograph, but now he sort of was kind of like he said, he goes. I feel like, I'm not gonna use the C word, but he did. He said, I feel like I write, you know, asking you for your autograph, because we're both the same, you and I. I mean, we'd all look the same on a slab. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> And Simon was like, couldn't find it. Yeah. No, it's that thing. It's literally that thing where it's like, you never forget that. Me and Simon would say, we all look the yeah. same on a slab. And then suddenly the scene presents itself where it's like, I know exactly yeah. what his characters are gonna say. So it's amazing, those things, in a very, like you said, in a very fantastical story, it's amazing how yeah. much you can put of yourself into it and, and how sort of personal it, it becomes, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Making work with Terrence Stamp. So cool. I
0: was like, oh, look at oh, how time goes really quick. I mean, I was, when, I should ask you about the actual filming a bit and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, listen, I I, I, don't have to, I don't have to run off. I'm good.
0: Hey. When, because um, I remember, because we, I think it was, a, we met briefly before. For, but we met probably for the first time. I think, I think we were editing it. It was like we went for a cup of tea. I think you were just coming from Soho. Yeah, we went for a cup of tea somewhere, it, and you were telling me about um the film. I was just like, that sounds completely mad. Um, but had so that was. I'm trying to think when that was. When did you shoot it then? I think did you it maybe me... in the COVID stuff.
1: What's yeah, happening? we we shot the bulk of it in summer 2019, and yeah. then we basically had test screened the film and we were about to do some, you know, little reshoot things. Like, Um, we basically, like, test screened it. And, um, you know, with the studio's approval, it's like, this is what we want to do. Now, I'm a big fan of doing additional filming because people always think of it as a, a negative thing if it's something that's imposed on you that you don't want to do. But, like, most directors, if you got a second chance to do something or you got to improve a scene with, like, just one shot... Oh, good. ..you would kill to it's do that. And so, oh. It has, I've done it on every film I've ever done, and it's always something... Because then you can be really surgical about it. It's yeah. almost like the way it's, like, you know, animated films, they're kind of constantly, like, yeah. redoing it, redoing it all the way through... But um, anyway, so then COVID struck and then we basically had to down on tools. And I was I was I was terrified that the studio would say, oh, we don't know how long this is going to go on. You may as well wrap it up. But we just waited it out. And so we then had this surreal experience of we we did some reshoots. It was we were one of the first films to come back in the UK and uh and we couldn't shoot on location. So we had to go to a studio and we had to recreate one or two sort of locations on, in the studio, which was sort of amazing. Okay. Like we did actually build, I mean, this is particularly, we built we built the Toucan just for one shot. Really? And I said to Christy, I said, you gotta get down here. Cause there's like, it's like the TARDIS. It's like, there's this other Toucan. Yeah. And I don't know what happened to the Toucan set, but it feels like we, you know, it was a, a proper replica. But the thing that was was really, it was so, the whole, it made the whole thing really emotional in a lot of ways because Sort of an emotional movie anyway, like for me. And then and then doing the reshoots of the, like, everybody came back. You do reshoots. You can't get the original crew again. But nobody had been working for, like, seven months. So we had the entire crew back again. Um, and it was really sort of emotional. And then, you know, so I don't know. It was, it, the, whole, the whole experience is sort of quite bittersweet in a way because two actresses who are in the film, Diana Rigg and Margaret Nolan, are no longer with us. Um, you know even the area has felt like it's changing and uh, just in 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 lockdown so many businesses that have gone under that like were there when we were filming and don't exist anymore so it, it made something that was already very sort of poignant to me sort of like quadruply so you know
0: yeah I think anything that happens with this because I guess we had a similar thing with with more of kind of lockdown just sort of happening smack bang in the middle of it and then suddenly already sort of the film that you're thinking about all the time then becomes weirdly tied in with this whole big global thing
1: but i mean I the, it was like more was like the last film they saw before lockdown
0: we were in between the first and second one actually no it could be festivals yeah. we both squished the end of lockdowns of, the, of a pandemic
1: <laughs> so no, I know, kind, of, it's, kind of but it, it it's it's um yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a, it's a strange thing with that because it's something where it feels kind of wrapped up in it, but at the same time, you know, I, when I when I look at it now, obviously there's scenes in the movie where like, you know, somebody said this on on the social media the other day. They said the scariest part of your movie was watching Thomas and Mackenzie run through 200 people in Oxford Street with no masks. <laughs> and I think that thing
0: now, if all films going to start putting people in masks just in background I was going to ask about like that some of the shots that you've got sort of just around town are incredible and I don't know some of them I was like was he were they doing this actually there for real like did you have like <laughs> what so you closed off like Piccadilly Circus
1: no well so I mean y- I mean yes and no in the sense of like in general I was wondering actually sort of like how much of it was sort of location versus sets and sort of that kind of thing. well all of the exter- all of the exteriors are all the real locations I mean there's nothing that's in Soho that we didn 't shoot in Soho, yeah. and sure. you know the and the Fitzrovia bits of Fitzrovia. I mean honestly, like if at a very early stage when we were like first talking about making it, you know me and Marcus Rowland, my production designer, had a meeting with uh, our location man like a Miller Stevenson, just to talk about is this even possible because honestly if at an early stage a producer had said to me there's no way we can shoot in the real Soho we have to shoot somewhere else and fake it I might not have made the movie at all because sort of one of the reasons I wanted to do it was because I spend so much time in this I mean I'm in Soho right now is like I spent so much time in this area that I felt like this is a very famous area of London that isn't on screen that often you know you'd get it more in the 60s 70s 80s and then in in the in the last 20 years, I think only Michael Winterbottom has yeah. like ventured into Soho twice. But but so basically the big like sort of ticket shots, the biggest one was the, the Haymarket shot, which is when Thomason first walked into the 60s. And yeah, yeah. you know, because That's not only we were shooting yeah, and not only shooting in the center of London, but we had to redress as the 60s and so it's possible, but the thing that you have to do, and most low-budget films couldn't do this, is this the amount of notice. So for that shot alone, we had to give five months' notice. Like, we had to think that far ahead and, and pick, like, a Sunday yeah. in, like, August. It's like, it's this night between 10.30 and 2.30 a.m., and there's no wiggle room. Say if, like, something happened and you couldn't shoot that night, that's it. It's like, that's your that's your window. Yeah. Um, other, other shots like were more like three months, mainly the Soho stuff, like, um, Dean Street, Frith Street. There's that shot in the second dream when, when Matt Smith and Annie were driving up Frith Street and they turn into Bateman Street and they park on Greek Street and we made this club there. And, you know, when we're shooting those scenes, it was like the summer of 2019. And it's, we have the roads closed to traffic, um, on those nights, but you can't, as you know, you can't stop like the public. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a testament to the AD department. 60s. Yeah, I mean, basically, as you know, with that shot, and I can't even believe we pulled it off ourselves. And when we were trying to shoot that crane shot, there were like moments where I wouldn't share this with anybody else, but I'd be thinking, like, oh, I wonder if we're gonna pull this off tonight. This seems <laughs> this seems ambitious. Uh, and really it's down to like, as you know, like you just got like tons of like second and third ADs and PAs and location assistants just trying to hold the modern world at bay yeah. and asking people, just, just give us 60 seconds. I mean, most of the time it becomes like a war of attrition is the way that you do it is you kind of just flood the shop with your people and your stuff to the point okay. where... Oh, a film
0: crew will we'll go the other way kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was also some... Clever, I mean, Marcus Rowland, he like, he redressed the, 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 um, all the kind of marquees. The great thing with Soho is that once you get above ground level, the buildings are as they were. There's some VFX trickery in the distance where like in the far distance of the shot, like mm-hmm. a, a modern bus is turned into a period bus or like in the way, way distance where they might be people looking behind a barrier that's kind of painted out. But the bulk of the shot is real. And then all of the other location stuff was, we really did it. And it's just something where you had to, And sometimes it just becomes a bit of a brain teaser where there were some sequences where Soho square, it was like, we can shoot this, this one way on this night. And we have to shoot the other one way on the other night. Yeah. So there was some, there was some tricky stuff. And there were also the other tricky thing about that stuff was that we were shooting in the summer. So, we're down to like six and a half hours of night. And there was one little chase sequence where, you know, just that thing where it doesn't matter what your budget is, it's like the sun is going to come up when the sun is going to come up. And that is, I'd always call it, I'd always call it like Dracula O'Clock. It's like when the sun comes up, you're dead. And there was like one scene where we were only like maybe one setup away from finishing it. And the sun came up and it's like, okay everybody and that's it and with no like second day to do anything so then in the edit you're left with this kind of very weird ending to a scene and luckily that was one of the things that like cut to like a year later yeah it was like I have to get the end of this bit (laughs) like not in the location I managed to fabricate it in a different way but it was that that was the most there's lots of ambitious things about the movie with the choreography and the period stuff but those location scenes i'm really proud of because it's just like everybody works so hard like the ad department i mean i think i think everybody went into it with a really gung-ho approach of like yeah we can do this and then it's it's challenging like doing like night shoots and soho every night because yeah. you're 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 never quite 100 percent in control yeah. like london cannot be tamed you know <laughs>
0: Hopefully adds that with the sort of delirium, delirium of night shoots, maybe adds an appropriate sort of tinge of kind of to to proceedings, which would fit it totally, I guess.
1: No, I mean, it, it, it is that thing, like I, sort of the kind of idea of like the last half an hour of the movie is that, you know, Thomas and Mackenzie hasn't, her character hasn't slept for 48 hours. So yeah. it's kind of like that delirium you get from sleep deprivation, you know.
0: Yeah. All feeds into her performance.
1: Yeah, well, she was also, it's worth pointing out, she was 18 years old when she shot the movie. Really?
0: I was yeah. watching her, I was kind of like, oh, it's amazing when you get actresses sometimes look so convincing at playing, like, sort of young teenagers at that kind of age. I was like, oh, she must be, her, I don't know why, I assume she was in her 20s. They're an amazing duo. Like, getting those yeah. like, they're just, like, really, like, two of the most kind of exciting acts, I think, at the moment. And weirdly yeah. like, sort of Thomas and, yeah, I think, probably like, everyone saw her in does it leave no trace and she's yeah, just yeah, yeah. so so sort of magnetic and kind of this as we were saying sort of wor- wor- you know you worry about her um and then i'm gonna tell you joyce just had like this it's sort of like weird in a way it's sort of i thought it seemed watching it seems almost like a kind of weird nice meta thing for her character in that she's had such a sort of meteoric kind of starry thing happening sort of kind of Kind of in the middle of, because I guess like Queen's Gambit and stuff all went, went bonkers, it's like when you guys were in post, would that have been? So kind of yeah. just, sort of before all that happened. And now when you see it, it's like, oh, I
1: don't know, it's weird. No, it, it was also interesting. It was that thing where I, I had met Anya um, six years ago, after, just after The Witch. Even though I hadn't written a word of the Soho screenplay, I met her in Los Angeles after she was at Sundance. I'd seen it at Sundance. I was on the jury that year yeah. and we gave Robert Eggers best director. And, um, and I, I, you know, it's funny, I was watching the film, even though I hadn't read the script, I was saying she should be in my solo movie. And I had coffee oh, yeah. with her. Yeah, I had coffee in Los Angeles and much like Christy, I like, told Anya the whole plot of the movie over coffee. And she was like, oh, whoa, well, I want to be in that movie. And I said, well, as soon as I've got the script, I'll send it to you. But originally, I was thinking about Anya playing Eloise. And then over the years, when, well, basically... Oh, I'm like from out, The Witch, I was kind of like, wow, imagine the
0: girl from The Witch doing kind of like sort
1: of 60s kind of cool stuff. But. Well, I think by the time that we'd written the screenplay, it I'd seen okay. her in three years of movies and seen her sort of grow up on camera and also started to see her become... Like, she's got very like sort of just like this... Movie star kind of like presence, yeah. You know, you know, thomason and, and Anya have like different energies in a, in a great way. And it seems like so Annie Taylor Joy, you could slot her into a film, you could slot her into a film from the 60s or the 20s, or yeah. she would be a silent movie star,
0: yeah.
1: You know, and so First I was a bit nervous. like
0: completely sort of real, like completely sort of like of now and tangible. And I don't know if that's a good way to
1: describe it, but. Yeah, I think it was just that thing is I I just had the sense that Anya would be great playing the Sandy part. And I was a bit worried when I sent her the scripts that she might balk at the idea that, like, oh, you're sending me like the second lead. But no, she said, Oh, I'd actually love to play the Sandy part. So it wasn't until that, like Anya was the first act- actor to read it and like sign on. And then we went looking for Eloise. And it's interesting what you said about Leave No Trace, because I saw that movie and I had the I had the same, oh, hang on a second. I just got bumped out of my Zoom window. I'm here. Sorry. <laughs> um, it, I, I had the same feeling when I sent her the script, is that I I met her, she really wanted to do it. My first question was like, Is there anything in the script that makes you feel uncomfortable? And she said, No, no. She later said, <laughs> She said, oh, I was kind of lying about that. But you know, I said to my producers, they said, How was Thomas? And I said, Well, she's amazing. And uh you know, I think the film will be kind of scarier like with her in it because we'll be worried about her like and and then in a strange way like her coming to London to make the movie and Eloise coming to London in the movie yeah. are sort of inextricably linked in my head and in hers. I think she equates the whole thing as like the same yeah. journey in a way.
0: Yeah, and so where she's New Zealand. Is that where she's from? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Her accent's fantastic, by the way, in the film. I was watching it, I was like,
1: that's pretty great. She, I, will, I will say, this is not quite Jeremy Strong levels of method acting, but she did go down to Red Ruth under her own steam. <laughs> I was very impressed. Her and her dad went down to Red Ruth. Oh. Like, and I didn't tell them to, but she said, oh, we decided we should go to Red Ruth for the weekend. I said, oh, that's <laughs> amazing. I'm, I'm well, very impressed. Of I,
0: mean, I, was wondering, I mean, in terms of, it's sort of, I was going to ask like about sort of like how much rehearsal time you have with those two together and like um, how how that was working with the two of them. But I guess also what we were talking about before, just the sort of level of kind of choreography and planning with the cameras and some of these big set pieces, like particularly watching it, the, like the Café de Paris sort of big scene where, you, where like Matt Smith has the kind of dance number with both of them. And I was just kind of thinking, oh God, that just sounds like, like just a sort of a bit of a mind bender to sort of, logistically like how do you break that down approaching preparing for something like that I guess you, what comes first like well, what point do you start working with your
1: DP and choreographer do you do that? I don't know well no it, it's a good question because I, I guess the first thing the first thing Annie was like in the, in the sort of cast and then she was going to go off and do Emma so there was a point where we had her, but then you we were going to lose her to another work in title film. So we did a bit of pre-prep with her before she went off to that movie. And what we did was some like dance sessions and she has dance training, or I think she was, you know, like did ballerina training. So she's, she's really good at that. And then like, so then knowing what she could do, you're kind of in kind of a good shape with the choreographers, amazing choreographer, Jen White, to come up with these secrets, knowing that Anya can pull it off and then, it was actually more for like Matt Smith and Tomo, um, Thomason to get up to like Anya's level, which they worked really hard and did. But then that particular shot for as an example, and this kind of goes through all of the kind of choreography things. The thing that I always think is the mistake that people make on, and usually it's a cost thing. It's always the mistake that people make with choreography sequences, whether it's a music video or a TV or an advert or a film is make sure you can get the camera operator in a rehearsal don't let the camera operator be learning something very intricate on the day of the shoot otherwise you're just going to be losing time and even with the best camera operators they've got to get up to speed so my thing with this was I always if it was a big rehearsal I'd say can I get Chris Baines to come and be there and even shoot like a rough of it so that particular thing um, that Café de Paris shot with the one-er with, the with Matt Smith switching. Yeah. We first did it in Ealing Town Hall with like dance doubles, like dance doubles for Matt, Anya and Thomason. But Chris Baines, the camera operator, was there. And we had the set taped out on the floor so we could figure out exactly how it was going to work and he could get his head around it. Because in a scene like that where you've got dancers, you've got, you know, three actors dancing, but the fourth dancer is the camera operator because to make those switches work, he has to be in exactly the right place at the right time. And Chris Baines is like a world-class operator. So that's great. But it's like, you don't want him to be learning that on the day. So we did that. And there's, I'll come back to that in a second because it had another bearing on the shot. Then we did occasionally during the shoot, we were shooting like five day weeks, but occasionally we would do Saturday rehearsals where and usually it was because Annie was coming straight from Emma and, and didn't really have any prep time immediately before. So we would have these like Saturday rehearsals for really intricate choreography stuff, or even just a refresher. Let's do that dance number again, but on the set this time. So we did a Saturday afternoon with Matt, Anya Thomason, and Chris Baines again and shot the sequence, but without all the other extras and without most of the crew. We did the same thing with the um, choreography for the second nightclub with the sort of showgirls. We did the same thing for the choreography in the basement bar when they're sitting in that little bonquette and there's the mirror, or rather they're they're mirroring each other. And the other big one would be the the scene where, when you first see Anya, when they're in the lobby of the Café de Paris. So we'd rehearsed it a bunch of times, so that when you're coming onto set to do the take, there's obviously still some teething troubles, but at least you're going right into shooting. And that, that big, the big shot in the Café de Perry, I think it was only like 10 takes and it's, it's intricate stuff. And obviously there's how lots of
0: is, How much of it is, I was trying to, how much of it is them kind of coming in and out of shot actually in the take versus like a sneaky cuts and effects?
1: and. There's and no, like. there's no like, <clears throat> there's one like VFX transition, which is the first one that you see. But it's basically still one uninterrupted shot because Matt Smith doesn't change within the shot. It's like one one point we do a composite of Thomas and McKenzie, but even that, we did it without a green screen, without a motion control rig. We just mirrored exactly the same thing. And again, using Chris Baines as like, we used to call him the the camera operator, the human moco, because it's literally just going on muscle memory and choreography. But then the rest of the shot, and there's like five switches in a row, it's all just real, there's no cuts. Mm-hmm. It's all one take. And in fact, on the Blu-ray, I think we're gonna put the original take in because the original take, even without, it's just like, it's really impressive. Yeah. And there was there's one other thing that happened was that originally in that scene, as written, when Thomason kind of went into Anya's body and sort of becomes kind of Sandy, <clears throat> she was gonna have the blonde, she was gonna have a blonde wig and the pink dress and costume and makeup had spent ages doing that and then um, I had shown my girlfriend the rehearsal video that we'd done in Ealing Town Hall where we had the dance devils one of whom was a brunette and the other one was a blonde and those switches in camera a blonde to a brunette my girlfriend at one point said wait 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 what just happened that was amazing and I rematched. she goes no and play again play again and and then when we were doing the Saturday rehearsal where Thomason was in her blonde wig, I was watching it going, I, you know what? I wonder if it goes blonde to blonde, it's gonna be so slick. You might not even notice that anything's changed. So I think the night before we shot the shot for real, I made one of those calls that like costume and makeup were heartbroken where I said, guys, don't hate me, but Thomasin is gonna stay in her brown hair and pajamas because I think the shot's going to work better. And they were like, no, we love her in the dress. But I was like, honestly, so it was like that thing where and it was only because we had that rehearsal video
0: yeah. that
1: I'd like to so, sort
0: of, be in the pink dress like throughout that whole scene, like when Sandy first appears in the mirror. Was Thomas?
1: No, no, it was just yeah. in the, it was just in the dance bit. Yeah. Um, but oh, then that. there was <laughs> no bracket. No, so it, but, but that, that's the thing, I think, is that those things like I think sort of something that is always kind of a premium on movies is like, because some movies don't get to to do it at all, but I've always like really tried to insist on rehearsal time because I like to, I like to be shooting when we're on set. Like usually what we're trying to do within a day is always like super, super ambitious. So you want to kind of have got both in terms of like, if there's intricate choreography, obviously, you want to get that done before so you, everybody knows what they're doing so you're coming to set to shoot it. Mm. Or even with, just with drama scenes is like at, at least get through it with um, the actors before so that like I, I I don't really, I want to have kind of answered all the questions yeah, yeah. in the rehearsal room first so we're coming to set to work and shoot rather than trying
0: to figure it all out there in front
1: figure of it out there. I, don't I
0: guess think if people sort of know what they're doing already, then one is more efficient. But then I guess also, sort of, I don't know. If, if you've got a safer base to work from, then occasionally if a nice surprise happens, or a not definitely. a nice surprise happens, and you have to kind of like think about it quickly. You at least know all the answers and what's most important. I guess.
1: No, no, absolutely. It's like you at least you're coming from a basis of like we all know what we're doing, and then if something magical happens, or or there's something where you're running out of time and you have to kind of think of another way out of something. Like at least, at least you're still, at least you're still starting. I, I mean, there's different people work in different ways. And obviously some of the greatest directors of all time, somebody like Robert Altman is somebody who who didn't come to work with a plan and sort of just says, let's see what happens and stuff. But I, I'm, you know, I of have to, and then maybe it's having come from, you know, doing like when I was doing l- low-budget stuff or even doing TV, you sort of had to go in with, like, a, a game plan.
0: Yes. Like,
1: so, especially if you were trying to do something that was ambitious and you didn't really have the time or the money to pull it yeah. off. But at least if you kind of had it figured out, there was, like, a start, you know?
0: I really enjoyed watching, um, enjoyed that about watching
1: this film because,
0: like, I've sort you of know, been, like, a big fan of your stuff from, like, space and things, but all the way through. Like, your work's of incredibly choreographed and snappy and yet I was kind of watching it realizing like, oh, but I don't think I've actually seen you do like dance numbers and actual dancing before unless I'm getting,
1: being completely forgetful. Like,
0: do you want to, are you going to do more musicals? Can I do anything like that?
1: I mean, I'd like to. I think it's all about finding the right thing. Like, I feel like sort of this, I mean, I I love doing like choreography sequences and like... Because
0: all of that must just naturally sort of slot into because like you, I mean, I've always felt a bit silly saying but I've always thought always enjoyed that aspect of filmmaking the sort of like dance nature of it in a way and the and the camera approach, and the camera kind of being
1: another component of that yeah and the other thing that's nice about it is that I mean with Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho is you end up like reverse engineering sequences because say that first sequence when she goes into Soho is like it's as long as the song so, and you know, when she puts the needle down is like, so you kind of go through and say, so you know that by the time you get to that last chorus, yeah, you have to be in the club. So then it is an interesting thing where you're putting, you're putting kind of limits on yourself in terms of the choreography. And sometimes you kind of come up with like, so you've sort of worked out roughly what areas of the song things are happening. So these are the hero things to hit. And then within that, you know, with the choreographer and then with the actresses, you're sort of saying like, we need to kind of be here for this beat. So then if there's like, there's choreography and maybe there's some other things to work out. So even like Thomas and Mackenzie walking across the street, you want to get into the, it's the first chorus. So you want to get into the next verse when she starts yeah. walking down the stairs. So it's like, how long does it take to cross the street? Well, it takes this long. So we've got some time in the middle. Well, what if she stops and the camera goes around her? So then you're doing it in collaboration with the choreographer and the actor, like sort of like, it's like, it's, it's very tightly choreographed. And then occasionally it's like, there's some, you know, we can do something. Can else here. Can here, let's do
0: something Yeah,
1: you've us. got like four, four beats to kind of vamp or something like that. But it is an interesting thing. So in, in some ways it does reduce waste because you're not shooting more than you need because this is the length of the song. It was, it was one of the sort of saving graces on Baby Driver is there's those car chases that are really complicated and yeah. intricate. But they were always like they were always like hemmed in by the length of the song. And it's like it can't get any longer than this. So I don't know. I mean, I do really enjoy doing choreography. And, and I, I, you know, I'd love to do a musical if I could find the right thing. And uh, but we'll see. Oh, here comes Laura. We've been waffling then for a long time, yes, I guess. Waffling. <laughs> Well, uh, any Russell, that's absolutely fine. I just wanted to let you know that we're hitting the hour mark. But if you wanted to, to talk a little longer, that's that's absolutely fine. Um the well, only do you question want take, you want to take some questions and then and then we, uh, we've only had one question through so far. And this might be a prompt for people to go, oh, yeah, we can ask questions. Um, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to say it in a particular way, because you might want to kind of talk around it, Edgar, which is one of our members has emailed in asking about a specific project that you were apparently attached to in the kind of trade news. Uh, I'm not going to mention this specific project because, you know, these things change, but I guess it's a good question to say, you know, what's next and can you talk about it? Well, I have a superstitious thing, which is like, this is my lesson is to all directors out there. Do interviews about something until it's in the can. <laughs> like I always think it's like something where I always like sort of, and I've made this mistake in the past where I've, I've talked about, like projects that then don't come to fruition. And I'm sort of more embarrassed about having done the interviews than I am about not doing the movie. So um, I I would like to pass on that one because I sort of become a bit superstitious in old age of like, don't talk about a film that might be made. Talk about a film that has been made. That's my lesson to you all. (laughs) Don't jinx it.
0: Well, that steals my last question. I was going. What
1: was your last question? What is it?
0: <laughs> well, not not specifically that. Just like when you were talking before, it's not actually a good roundup
1: question at all.
0: It was more like a like uh, when you were talking just now about sort of um, choreographing things and, and everything being very accurate. And then and then early when you were talking about um, slotting in the sort of pick up stuff and it feeling a bit more akin to like how animation animation works. And I remember watching it both times, particularly that first sequence of Thomasin kind of dancing around in her bedroom. I'm not quite sure what it is. There's something about the quality of like the way she moves or how you cut it together or something like that. But it fe- she feels like an animated character, like in the sort of a Disney thing or something like that. Um, so I don't really have a question there other than you're going to do an animation or?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I do like do storyboards for everything. And um, um, I do like the idea of like, you can't always do it with with. It depends what the kind of film is, but I I like that thing that, and I tried to do this with Scott Pilgrim, but I do like that thing that in comics, a comic book artist, you unless it's kind of Garfield, but like a comic book artist would draw a different frame for every like moment. Mm-hmm. And you don't really repeat kind of like angles. They're always like sort of, and I always like felt that like I was trying sort of to do that sometimes with my films where you're you're like changing the setup every time because you're you're trying to do visual storytelling i mean that doesn't necessarily work if it's a, a big dialogue film and then it's into kind of shot Can and you rem- change the
0: setup any time a, th- a thing happens or a movement
1: yeah maybe it was like with each edit like for example in that opening scene there are no like repeated shots it's like each each shot is kind of taking you to the next bit to the next bit to the next bit and yeah. i sort of tr- try and sort of design sequences like that obviously sometimes with performance like you get into kind of like a shot and reverse rhythm but yeah. you know I, I do like that thing when you can is that you're you're like trying to sort of do visual storytelling and and making each cut like a new setup if that makes sense it's,
0: you, it's not just a case of we'll get coverage of this scene it's actually like it sort of all slots together and takes you on a each shot like a jigsaw kind of thing.
1: We'll yeah. Use. I mean, in some cases, it's that thing that people like old studio directors used to do as a way of controlling the edit. Because back in the Hollywood in the 40s, like those those directors didn't used to be in the edit. So what they would do is they would, oh, yeah. shoot, they would shoot it in such a way. This is like what John Ford and like Michael Curtiz and Howard Hawks used to do. They would shoot yeah. it in such a way that it couldn't be edited together in any other way. So they were basically controlling the edit in the way they shot. And I guess in a way, and sometimes you get into problems because you end up screwing yourself over, but to try and shoot things in a way that there's only one way that it goes together. Um, And that's, there are like big pluses to that and sometimes there are minuses to it, but um, that's sort of the way I like try
0: try to sort of do that but I can get a bit too intimidated and like being able to have the safety net going back
1: in. Oh, we've got lots more questions suddenly. Or maybe read? we yeah, we can do a, a little. I mean, I, I don't have I mean I don't have to run off if of you don't. We can do some uh, other questions. So,
0: hang on, let me read. Uh do you have any interest in directing TV
1: or longer form stories? So, I don't know if you've seen my know TV show spaced. No, I I um I I mean I I I I I yeah, I mean if I it, it would be the same as any film, it's about finding the right story. I think. The best TV shows out there are usually by people who it's their like life's work. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm always, I'm always, I like the idea of doing like a longer form thing, but I got to find the thing that I'm like just be so passionate about to spend. Cause you know, like making a movie takes minimum two years, usually I like a lot more, and TV shows are the same. So it would, it would just depend on the material. Um, the nice no face reunion. No, I don't, I, 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 I wonder whether, do people really <laughs> want to see that? I
0: do,
1: but... I mean, before <laughs> Sunset. They all have changed so much, it wouldn't be the same.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which of these to, which of these to get us too much power here. Hold on. I've got whatever,
1: stuff. whatever, like, um,
0: um, How did the visual representation of the gentleman ghosts come together? They are so effective and scary and fit in so well to the world of the film. How did you manage
1: this? Well, what what I wanted to do was, um, is there's something that kind of a lot of people who are like um, victims of trauma uh, as a coping mechanism. Some people have chosen to not remember and it was something that kind of in the research. It was something that kind of went through a lot of it, and it has a, a link to um, the sleep paralysis phenomenon as well, with like faceless figures. And so it was this idea about that you know Sandy has chosen to forget the faces of these men, and it was something that kind of like in research sort of really like an understandable coping mechanism, but also something that's kind of very disturbing. And so, but in shooting them, and there's obviously kind of like the it, you know, there's links to sort of artwork, like a lot of people have mentioned, like Francis Bacon as a sort of an influence, which maybe that's okay. like subconscious. But but so but how we did it though is we shot them for real, basically. So they're really guys in prosthetics, and they're also like their 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 costumes are entirely gray. So they were like in grey costumes and gray, and they had prosthetics over their eyes and mouth. And then um, the Wizards at Double Negative—they make the kind of like the sockets more sunken. So they made them more sunken, but you and didn't then really also have time
0: completely covered
1: over. Yeah, they did. Towards towards the end of the shoot, I think the VFX supervisor felt so bad for the guys. He said, "He goes, don't worry, you can shoot them without there." <laughs> like I think towards the end of the shoot, we started so to you, abandon that. Could
0: they see, or did you have like sort of like runners as like wranglers for all of these yeah. kind? Of lines?
1: sort of both like Barry Gower who did the prosthetics it's kind of an amazing thing they had like prosthetics over their eyes but they have like pin tons of pinpricks, a bit like a bee's eyes so they could see
0: yeah that it
1: was like but you still like it's not we're asking them to run like we're not asking them to do 100 meters like so and, and then with that sequence like so they're really there and then also we did kind of like photographic effects where we would like take sometimes the same take or sometimes another take and like um deregister it so it would be like one over another yeah um but the cool thing is that rather than they weren't on a green screen they were really in the set and it was just a way of like having wow. them physically sorry no
0: that's no, right was just i'm surprised that they were actually there on the set i assume just because of the sort of translucent
1: kind of thing well done them. I think in this in this day and in this day and age the com- Compositing that they can do is so good that the main thing that you need to get is like a clean plate. Yeah. So it would be like you maybe shoot two takes of them and then shoot like a clean plate so you can make them translucent. And then the other thing with that, especially when you first see them, they're doing like choreography. So Jennifer White had them all doing the same kind of like taking off their clothes choreography. Yeah. So it was like a sort of timed kind of, it was very, and you know, and and I think when we were shooting that scene, it was like this time thing where we had a click track, but we also had like spooky music playing. And they did look genuinely, even when without the finished effect, they looked genuinely disconcerting on set. And we had them out in the street as well. Like they were really out on Oxford Street. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I think people probably thought they were street performers. <laughs> I love
0: that sort of like when you're filming like a particularly weird scene, but obviously everybody working on it is so like knows what exactly is going on. But anybody just going past, just like, what the fuck
1: <laughs> no, I know. Well, that's the thing. I think in in London, at a certain point, is that people like, you know, like you, you can sort of get away with making a movie in, in plain sight because at a certain point, people don't really care. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, if you actually decide, like, oh, it's good. Um, I'll take one more of these guys. Soho is a mad tapestry of wonder. So, are there any places you wish you'd shot in but couldn't?
1: <laughs> oh, well. Not really, because at the end of it, as you probably noticed, in the, in the end credits, we basically like, what happened was, is that the shots that are in the end credits were shot in lockdown. Um, I, 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 you know, like, lived yeah. Yeah. So basically those were shot in full on lockdown before we did our reshoots. I had been into Soho when it was completely empty. This was in like July 2020 if anybody into to town, utterly, utterly deserted before anything had reopened. And it was so magical and humbling and sort of spooky. I said to you know, my producer, I said, we have to shoot this. So we got permission from the city of Westminster. We weren't allowed to, they said, you can't put down track and you can't put down a tripod and you cannot impede any cars or pedestrians. And other than that, you can do whatever you want. Now, there were no cars and pedestrians, but we weren't allowed to put track down. And we only allowed 10 people max. And I think I had to be the AD that day. And, uh, uh, but we basically had it, just took a steady cam and we stabilized it afterwards. We had one wide lens and we basically went out into Soho and shot all of those shots in the end credits. I think in about like six hours, we did like, um, 45 setups or something because there was no shot that wasn't amazing. Okay. So it was that strange thing right at the end of it as I ended up, and I wanted to, specifically I wanted to shoot every alley in Soho. Yeah. So that's what, the the idea of that end bit is like the epitaph to the movie and like showing what Soho is like today.
0: It's wonderful. I love, I sort of love that sequence and then particularly in, like in sort of, you can't help but sort of guess that you must have shot those bits during lockdown. It's a, uh, yeah, it's very weird. I felt very. I, I think I walked in through Soho late, later in the day after having seen it. It's very. It's quite a strange feeling. So, um, well, I feel good to wrap up. But it's been an honour to chat to you, and I love the film. And uh, oh, thank thanks everyone for for tuning in. And
1: I want to thank the amazing Rose Glass, who is an an incredible director. And I also like the fact that we both coordinated. I like that.
0: <laughs> well i've got loads of more nerdy questions i want
1: to ask about if you just keep, keep rambling pages. ages Co- a coffee
0: see you for a coffee in soho sometime
1: yeah <laughs> okay. thanks everybody hope you enjoyed
0: this podcast was recorded at a directors uk member event you can hear more episodes of the directors uk podcast on itunes soundcloud spotify or your favorite podcatcher Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.